This is episode 105 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Talking Journalism During a Pandemic. This is the first of a series of episodes that we'll be doing about journalists and journalism. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am really honored to welcome a new guest to the show. Joel Kaplan teaches political reporting, advanced reporting, and communications law at Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. Prior to that, he covered City Hall for the Chicago Tribune, was a member of the newspaper's investigative team, and contributed to several articles in the paper's 1987 Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation of Chicago City Council. From 1979 to 1986, he was a reporter for the Tennessean in Nashville, where he covered the state legislature. In 1986, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting for a series on then U.S. Representative Bill Boner. He's co-author of Murder of Innocence, The Tragic Life and Final Rampage of Lori Dan. The movie version of that book originally aired on CBS. He was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, and a journalism fellow at Yale Law School, where he received a master's in the study of law. He also has a master's in journalism from the University of Illinois and a bachelor's in arts from Vanderbilt University. He served on the National Board of Investigative Reporters and Editors and was its treasurer. Earlier this decade, he served as the Ombudsman for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So Joel, Professor Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to have you on the show to talk about journalism. It's really um, an interest of mine, and especially right now when all of us are glued to the news during the pandemic. Journalism has really changed a lot, I think, in our lifetimes. What are some of the big shifts that you think about when you look back over the fields over the last 30 years or so? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Um, You know, journalism was just, uh, you know, when I was growing up and my father worked for the government, and we had uh, three newspapers a day in my house. And I always thought, wow, what a great life it would be to to work, to be a journalist, work for a newspaper, kind of be on the cutting edge of history. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was, I would say, a couple of golden ages of journalism. And I'm, I'm fortunate to be, uh, was in a big part of much of those golden ages. I, I think most people who um, who are listening to you now um, probably think about journalism and then they go back to, you know, at most Vietnam and uh, certainly Watergate where, where journalism and investigative reporting came of age and, and you realize the importance of journalism as the, as the fourth branch of government, which, but that was also, I mean, the beginning, I think, of the downfall in a way because mm-hmm. You know, in, in the old in those days, 
there, there were a lot of newspapers, but soon it became one basically per town, unless it was a big, big city, and they had a monopoly on classified advertisements and really all sorts of advertisements. And so then Wall Street got interested because it would became such a lucrative profession. And so chains were formed. You have Gannett, you have Knight Ritter, McClatchy, and, and some of these others. And all of a sudden, uh, Wall Street was very interested. And it was great for Wall Street um, because, again, the news business, both you know local television news and newspapers, and to some extent magazines, were making money hand over fist. And so the investors were interested in all that. But like I said, that ended up becoming the downfall. So, you know, in the 80s, you had uh, cable start showing up. And so you had cable news, you know, CNN became very popular. And, and news was a real commodity that people were interested in, both uh, national, international, local. And then in the 90s, you, you had the growth of the internet. And believe it or not, if you would go back to the late 90s, newspaper stocks, media stocks were, were, they were the Amazons and the Googles of their day. They just mm. had skyrocketed to an unbelievable amount because they said, oh, the future, this is the future. But of course, what happened was that the news business kind of were set in their ways and wanted to keep the print edition or the local newscast. And people like Google and Apple really kind of filled the void. And you had, um, you had uh, Craigslist come and basically eviscerate classified advertisements. And so all of a sudden you had these news businesses at the very top and it kind of fell off the cliff. And because of that, Wall Street got concerned. And all of a sudden <laughs> the, news business, the news business was still doing great, but they couldn't pay the debt because, you know, if you just had a, a newspaper by itself, family owned newspapers still did, did pretty well. And then, of course, but those that were bought by Wall Street and were trade on the market, they, you know, they saw their stock prices plummet like we're seeing right now in a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot, of, a lot of places. And so you had a real struggle, uh, uh, which kind of like uh, almost became a collapse in 2008 with the, with the deep recession that we had. And the news business really hasn't recovered from it. And then you had the growth of of the internet in terms of bloggers and then and Twitter and Facebook, where people started finding alternative ways, not only to get their news, but politicians like the president of the United States currently decide he could bypass for the most part the media mm -hmm. and just go directly to the people he was trying to influence. And then of course you had the growth of, of Fox News. And so you have more niche media, some might call it propaganda media, but you have some of that going on. Although I think right now, you find that even the president of the United States needs the needs the media. He can't he can't get his message out just with Twitter anymore under this pandemic. And so my counterintuitive thing is that things were very depressed for a while, but now and in the last couple of years, most businesses were thriving. The news newspaper and the news business really was kind of in the toilet. Well, we're all in the toilet now. And so I think you'll find that I think there's going to be a renaissance for uh, news sites, uh, both online and traditional. And when, once this is over, you'll find that all these businesses will have to advertise and they're going to want to advertise in places that, that have the most eyes to them. So I'm counting that counterintuitively almost that we're going to see uh, a growth in good journalism. Part of that is because 
everyone now is relying on the media, not just the CNN or MSNBCs of the world, the National or the New York Times. Everyone's relying on their local media because they want to know where is the virus right now? How many cases are there? Are people in the hospital? Are they dying? Where were they last? Mm-hmm. Those type of that type of information, I guess they could go find on their the, their you know, their local health department sites. But new, but journalists always kind of took place the public and did all that digging and found out. I mean, it's the journalists who go to cover trials because most people don't have the time to go there. And, and it's the journalists now who I think are breaking down what's happening with, with the virus and really explaining it to the general public. And I think really doing a fantastic job, especially considering that most of these newsrooms have been decimated, not by the, the disease, but by the financial disruption. Yeah, nothing like a pandemic to bring the importance of news to the forefront. It's really, it's it's, it's interesting yeah. to watch, that's for sure. I mean, even after 9-11, remember, I mean, the incredible job that the New York Times did, not only because it was in their backyard, but just the way they do it. And people were were hungry for all of that. But like, you know, most natural disasters, that wasn't a natural disaster, but no disasters, it goes away after a while. But this thing is sticking with us and it's going to stick with us for a long time. So I do believe that, our hunger for news and particularly for local news is going to stay with us. In one of your online videos, you talk about the press being in a sense, the fourth branch of government, which kind of caught my ear serving as uh, overseers or uh, watchers on the wall as one of my um, interviewees uh, uh, described it. How important is that role in a healthy democracy? Do you think it still exists and do you think it's changing? So I think it, it's crucial, and I think um, we we have a, a system of government that was created that's a system of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. And, but what we found, like uh, during the first two years of the Trump administration, for example, you, you had obviously a Republican president, you had a Republican House, you had a Republican Senate, and for all intents and purposes, you had a conservative Supreme Court. So there were no checks and balances or limited checks and balances. We have more now because you have a Democratic House. But during those two years, it was the press that was serving as a check. Uh, you know, now the president and his followers were calling it, you know, fake news and, and hoax and all this other stuff. But after a while, people have been able to see that no, that's not true. They were really just covering the news, and and it was only fake news to the people who who didn't like what they were hearing or seeing. So it's but it's always been. A check government, but now we're looking at it from a, a national perspective. The the saddest part of what's happened to the news business is uh, the coverage of local government. And you know, I started like you said in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and that was the state capital. And uh, and I covered the legislature and state government for a long time. And we really did serve as a as a check and balance about what was going on because sometimes. You know, there there could be people of different parties, but they're still they're still kind of in it together. They they compromise and they send out money and do things like that. But the point is that when I was covering the legislature and I was in Nashville and was the hometown, there were there were probably I don't know anywhere between two dozen and three dozen reporters representing newspapers from across the state of Tennessee, representing television stations, representing ra- news radio stations. And so you actually had like a, um, you know, a, a state when there was a, there was something, a press conference or 
or, or a legislator here, you had a lot of journalists watching what was going on. We were the watchdogs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was just plain reporting about, you know, what was going on. But sometimes you kind of dig a little bit and found out that maybe inappropriate expenditures were taking place. Mm-hmm. The same is true now that I'm in Syracuse at the, at the Capitol in Albany. But the problem now is there's no one in Albany. All these, you know, the Syracuse paper, the Rochester paper, the Buffalo, they don't have people in Albany anymore. They rely mm. on the Associated Press or whatever news service they have. So you're kind of losing that watchdog function. The same is true about City Hall. Mm-hmm. Every city had City Hall reporters. Usually they had two or they covered school board meetings. When, when you have a cutback of, of journalists, you have a problem that you're not really covering it. And that's really where corruption breeds. Mm-hmm. And on the federal government, you know, there used to be reports at every every federal agency, you know, HUD and and the Department of Agriculture, you know, the Des Moines Register always had reporters there. And the cutbacks, those are the first to go. So you have you have these agencies really kind of uh, running around on guard. And I don't care if they're Democratic agencies or Republican. Mm-hmm. I don't care who's in charge. Corruption can get it breeds. And if there's no one watching what's going on, occasionally you'll have a whistleblower. But again, it's not the same as having the press really looking into things. So that's really kind of, you know, the notion that the Washington Post says that democracy dies in darkness. There, there's nothing truer than that. And so when when I found out that, for example, the Youngstown, Ohio paper closed down six months ago or whatever. Oh, you know, who's covering things in Youngstown now? Mm-hmm. It, so so I'm hopeful that, again, this whole experience with the pandemic is going to bring more interest in journalists and local journalism particularly. And it might not be the same model. Maybe it will be a not-for-profit model, but that, that, we'll, that we will have local entities that will be covering the news. In one of the videos, I think you also talk about educating the public about what is real news and what is fake news. How do you think we can do that? And really, if you can also comment on why we've lost so much faith in traditional media, what can we do as news consumers to to be better about this? So it's, you know, what it does is it really goes back to teaching civics in high school. I mean, so, you know, we teach the notion about um, We've always taught the notion of, you know, how a bill becomes a law and the role of the executive and the role of the legislative and the role of the judiciary. And we and then we talk about, again, what I would call the fourth branch, the, the media. But in those days, what you would call mainstream or legacy media is like, OK, it's the it's the journalists that are kind of like not only are they the gatekeepers, but they're the agenda centers. So when you picked up a local newspaper like a Chicago Tribune, what was in there was vetted by reporters and editors, and you, you knew that it was reliable. Not always. Some, you know, everyone makes mistakes, but they would correct their mistakes or whatever. And the same thing, is, you know, you, you watch the WBBM, the, uh, the CBS affiliate in Chicago, and you could count on all that because it was vetted. There were, you know, and so crazy conspiracy theories rarely if ever found their way into print or on broadcast because a journalist would look at it and say, this is not true and, and, and not do it. Well, guess what? Because of, of the internet and social media, there are no more gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. There are no more reliable news sources. And so someone will see something on Facebook 
or or they'll see something on Twitter or Instagram, and they'll all of a sudden say, "Oh my God, I didn't realize that the source of of the coronavirus was our military going into Wuhan, mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, some of this stuff sounds really believable, especially if you're if you're prone to believe things like that, mm-hmm. which unfortunately many people are. And so, so you have that difficulty in saying, okay, how you know that's news and how you know that's not. And then it's exacerbated by the president of the United States calling things that are undeniably true, fake, or wrong. So then you're like, well, who do you believe? So part of of uh, understanding media literacy is to get people to understand what are credible sources and what are not credible sources. And I always tell people that, you know, 99% of what you see online is either public relations or garbage. 1% is, is the legitimate media. And so it, so there is still a space, a place everywhere for professional reporters, professional editors who go out there and, and find the news and write about it. And we have some of the best reporters in our history working right now. Unfortunately, there aren't enough of them. And in addition, they're not getting as much, um, you know, uh, they're not, not enough people are actually seeing what they're writing or unless they go online. And, and that's where it's important to see, you know, when it's politico.com, that's a reliable source. If it's, po- you know, some people are changing a couple of letters and changing mm-hmm. the, 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 and all of a sudden it looks like it's legitimate, but it isn't. So part of that whole civics thing, both in high school and after that is to un- let people understand what is reliable and what isn't. Well, speaking of which, we can talk about cable news and the population seems to be split between watching Fox news versus CN- CNN, MSNBC and me as a consumer, I actually find them both objectionable. Fox just seems to be so rude. And uh, MSNBC, sometimes I just roll my eyes because it seems so agenda-driven. Should we just turn off our televisions? No, not at all, especially not right now. In in a way, there's this false equivalency between um, what I would say is Fox and and I would put MSNBC and CNN in, in a different category. And here's why. First of all, CNN started itself as the only cable network. And they're very good at news. The the problem in all three of those, um, all three of those networks is that their prime time, their evening thing is all, not all, but mostly opinion oriented information. And even to some extent, Fox News, if you watch it during the day, for the most part, not, not completely. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, the morning program. I'm talking about the news program. They're pretty good at covering the news as it is. I see. But, but the problem is when you have the Sean Hannity's on Fox and Rachel Maddow on MSNBC and Anderson Cooper on CNN, you have these people who are pontificating. That said, Rachel Maddow and Anderson Cooper, whereas they give their points of views, are really grounded in facts. Sean Hannity is not. I mean, you know, he makes stuff up and his whole thing, you know, he's an advisor to the president of the United States and he's his propagandist. So that's why I say there's a false equivalency there. Fox is a propaganda network other than the, the few hours during the day when they actually do straight news. MSNBC and 
it's kind of like having a liberal editorial page, but the news pages are pretty, pretty solid, both in CNN and MSNBC. And I think you go there and you'll find what you need to know. But, you know, the president of the United States, if he gets a question he doesn't like, you know, calls it, you know, he, you know, he says that it, it, MSNBC is owned by Comcast instead of Comcast. And, you know, it's always, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and CNN is, you know, a bunch of fake news and all this other stuff when in fact, it's just not. And, and one of the differences also is that, you know, n- neither of those stations are, you know, are saying, Hey, I can't, we're not going to criticize the Democrats. We're not going to criticize. We're not going to bring any critics on. Well, that's what Fox does, but it's not what these other networks do. So in, in that case, if you're saying, should I ignore what's going on there? Well, yeah, I could tell you from, you know, 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern time, and you might want to not tune into those those stations. But the rest of the day, I think it's very important for you because they are the they are on, you know, 24 seven. And, and in the old days, when the networks are still only on a half an hour, you know, from 630 to 7 or 7 to 730. It's hard to to just wait for a half an hour a day like we used to, especially when we're all stuck at home. So I, I think it is important, to, but it's also important to look at your local news. Well, it seems to me that news has changed a lot um, and became much more sensationalized after it went online, so to speak. And now you can see all the trends and clicks and likes and you know things trending on Twitter and all that. I mean, we've always had tabloids, but now I feel sometimes as though everything is tabloids. What What do you see? Well, one of the problems is that you know, again, when we when when journalists were and news organizations were gatekeepers, it's like it was like a it was like a dinner, right? And then and part of that dinner was spinach, and uh, <laughs> you know, no one likes eating their spinach, but you know, we have to like tell you what's going on in Afghanistan, even though you might not care, especially when we weren't there. Or, you know, what's going on, it's, you know, in, in Somalia where uh, people are being slaughtered or there's a civil war. No, no one wants to read about it. They don't care about it. But we felt, feel like you have an obligation to learn about. Meanwhile, that dessert, that cream pie is what's going on with the Kardashians, right? Mm. Or, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but what one of the problems that has happened is, is, is a lot of journalism and news has moved online. And this is, true about reputable news organizations and so on, they are determining what they should cover, not by what they think the public should know, but what the public wants. Right. And so so uh, if you go into a newspaper now, and recently they actually have a big board where they have all the stories and how many people click on them. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I was at the uh, over the summer last summer. I was at the Tribune, and they had moved, and and there's like this big thing, and it will have all the stories and who ha- who gets the most clicks. Right. All of a sudden, you see, well, who guess what's getting the most clicks? Is that dessert I talked about? And so yeah. well, we have to give the public what they want because the more clicks we get, the more uh, revenue we get from advertising, that kind of stuff. It's like uh, it's like a catch twenty two, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to necessarily write about that stuff, but that's what the people are reading, so we want to give them more of what they're reading. Boom, 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 boom. Sure. And that's so you're correct when you say it's more tabloidy. Um, it's more tabloidy because that's what the public wants. Right. Yeah. I am so glad to have a law professor here to talk about this next question, <laughs> because I 
I, I want to understand a little bit better this thing that I think gets confused when the government goes after somebody like, yeah. uh, like um, Edward Snowden. So he would call what he did, the, the information that he released to a journalist, he would call that whistleblowing. Yep. And the government calls him something else. Sometimes they call him a traitor or a thief of secret uh, documents. So what are the lines drawn both legally and professionally for a journalist in those situations? Well, so a journalist, for the most part, is protected by information that a whistleblower, a leaker, a trader, whatever you want to call a Snowden, whatever they release, the journal, as long as the journalist wasn't involved in the hacking themselves or in you know conspiring to break the law, they are pretty much protected under the the First Amendment and under uh, precedent. Um, and it really does go back to the Pentagon Papers case, right? So that was the case where Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, first mm-hmm. to the New York Times and then to the to the Washington Post. And 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 by the way, that, that movie, I think it's called The Post, right? Which is interesting, but uh, it came out a couple of years ago. It was a great movie about that whole incident. And I think to understand the role of journalists in all this is important. The issue there really, though, was not that you're going to prosecute journalists for having classified information, it was whether or not you could stop them from publishing it. So generally speaking, journalists can never get in trouble unless, like we said, um, they're involved themselves in doing it. Now, in terms of Snowden, if he wanted to be a a traditional whistleblower, he should have followed the whistleblower path, which is um, kind of what the whistleblower in the Ukraine case did, right? Oh, he reported up, and then he did it, and he didn't. He did not go to the media himself. So he did it, and that's you know supposed to go through the the channels. Now, in some cases, you think, well, if I go through the channels, it's going to just be deep six. No one's going to find out about it, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. But you know, he was a government contractor. He signed a confidentiality agreement. He had classified information, and he leaked it. By any stretch of imagination, if they if they arrest him, he's going to be prosecuted. But the people he leaked it to worked for the Intercept or wherever they worked at the time. I think he was um, the Guardian. I think yeah, it was the Guardian too, but it was also mm-hmm. uh, an online uh, aspect. Yes, mm-hmm. he actually gave it to the Guardian and the and and they were going to give it to the New York Times too, but they went with the Guardian first. Um, they're pretty much okay but when you get a, a situation like in the in the chelsea manning case right mm-hmm. that's when it went to wikileaks first of all it's wikileaks a news organization and you, you get people saying eh, yeah no and all that but it was um wikileaks that basically taught him how to told him what to do in order to uh to get that information and so they're they're more co-conspirators in that case Although, i see you know that you know he's been uh um Julian Assange, yeah. yeah. Assange. So, you know, he's basically asked to be extradited to be uh, prosecuted. Now, he will claim that he's a journalist, and it will be interesting to see what happens. I don't think he's going to be able to, to, to really be able to – I mean, he'll try that defense, and it might work, but it probably won't. I see. Well, so that's very interesting. There really are some gray areas uh, in there. So Glenn Greenwald has gotten in trouble again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the government of Brazil brought charges against him mm, a few months ago, I guess. Um, I think they also were accusing him of, of hacking, basically yeah. of getting information illegally. Mm-hmm. And so um, what kinds of protections are there for journalists like that? You know, he's in Brazil, Assange is um, in London. Do you think we're getting better at protecting journalists or, or worse? 
Oh, that's a great question. Uh, in most places, I'd say um, we're getting worse. And again, a lot because it stems from the leadership of our country right now. But, you know, Obama had probably, uh, President Obama probably was the toughest on journalists when it came to things like classified information and things like that. Um, and he did a lot of prosecution or his Justice Department did a lot of prosecuting and things like that. It used to be pretty much that the Justice Department did not go after journalists for their sources. But now that has, that has and, and there's no real protection under the Constitution for journalists uh, to keep their sources confidential um, because there's no federal shield law. So, but most journalists won't really reveal their sources. So you have that, that real strong tension there. And it means that some journalists are going to go to jail unless they do. But now with things as sophisticated as they are, the government has a lot of their ability to find out who your sources are if they want mm, to. I because see. of cell phones and everything else. And they can subpoena the records and do those type of things in the old days. I mean, that's why if you think back at Watergate when they met in the garage, right? Mm -hmm. There was right. no way to do that. But now it's almost impossible to even meet in the garage because unless you, you, you don't bring your cell phone with you because you can track where everyone's going just by, you know, the GPS signals from your cell phones. So um, and then how do you even arrange it? But I'm sure there's still some of that going on. But it's difficult. It used to be, you know, you wouldn't go after journalists to find someone. They would be the last person you would you would you would go after only if you couldn't find out anything else. But in the in the Valerie Plame case, you know, they went after Judith Miller of the Times, and also Matt Cooper of Time Magazine, and they basically threatened jail. And, and Judith Miller went to jail, and then she finally really ended up releasing. You know, she indicated that that Scooter Libby was her source, which. You know, there are people on both sides of that were very troubled by by both the, what the government did, but also by what she did. Well, um, she was she was under a lot of duress, if I remember correctly. She was absolutely, and um, it also was the whole. You know, we talk about whistleblowers, but you generally don't think the whistleblower is being the chief of staff to the vice president of the United States, right? That's not a whistleblower. That's just someone who's really trying to smear someone else, and. But, you know, once you agree to take anything off the record, then you have some type of obligation to protect who gave it to you. And that, that's where it becomes somewhat of a problem. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting, really, some fine lines in there. Yeah. I have been struck by the power of investigative reporting, uh, particularly recently with uh, Ronan Farrow's investigation of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein. And then also, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast Serial, but the yeah. host of that podcast was uh, basically able to get a convicted person's case reopened. So what do you think about the role of journalists as investigators as compared to law enforcement investigations? So that and it's a really, another really good question. And it goes back to there, there's a different uh, set of standards <laughs> for both. But, you know, investigative reporting is my background. And there's an organization called Investigative Reporters and Editors that have been around since uh, the, the late 70s and, and started because a guy named Don Bowles, who was uh, – was a re investigative reporter for the Arizona, uh, one of the Arizona papers, uh, was murdered. His, his car was blown up by by mobsters, and it, it's a rare thing, not so rare in other countries, but very rare in our country, where a journalist is killed for doing their job. 
Mm-hmm. And so a group of investigative reports went to Arizona. It was called the Arizona Project to investigate who killed um, Don Bowles. And oh. out of that formed investigative reports and editors. And now you'll have investigative reporting in every state of the union and different. A lot of things involve, you know, wrongful convictions. It's a big area where journalists go in there. So what's the difference between law enforcement and, and journalists? Well, Law enforcement has subpoena power, which all every journalist I've ever met said, boy, if I only had subpoena power, I could really do my <laughs> I job. I could really that. get, I could get at the truth. <laughs> right. But the difference is that, so they have subpoena power and the ability to go into places that journalists can't go. But journalists have the ability, because they're, they're looked at as being objective and not, uh, not having an agenda. So people will talk to journalists mm-hmm. that will very often not talk to law enforcement, um, both um, in terms of police or FBI and in terms of prosecutors or things like that. And journalists sometimes, there's some really smart police and FBI agents out there, but but sometimes they're, and, and they're very good at what they do, but there's sometimes they miss big picture things. And journalists, of course, can miss things too, but sometimes they, they come at it from a different perspective. Sure. And so they'll be asking about more trends or different things. And so, whereas a Law enforcement might be fixated on a specific case, for example. Journalists might be fixated on a on an issue, like a prosecutorial misconduct issue or 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 bad policing issue. And so it doesn't really fall under the umbrella of law enforcement, but journalists are able to really find wrongdoing and things like that. And sometimes they they work side by side, to be honest with you. And they're they're both pursuing the same thing, but they might have different people. And sometimes I know it's hard for people to believe they actually do work together. Not so much journalists and law enforcement, but sometimes law enforcement gets stymied in what they're trying to do because, and, and so they might leak or, or, or push a journalist in a different direction, saying maybe you should look at this, or did you know that this person had a police record someplace else? And because, because when you publicize something or you write about it or it's broadcast, a lot of times it opens up a lot of doors, not just for the journalists, but for law enforcement. Sure. Say, hey, people are now coming out. I didn't even know this person existed. And he told the reporter this thing. I can go interview them and it will break things open. So they're kind of doing the same thing, but they're using different methods. Mm, yeah, very interesting. I have a episode coming up uh, that I've actually already recorded, but I haven't released yet with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Mm. And uh, in that we talk about the dangers to, to yep. journalists, especially abroad. Uh, what what dangers do you see facing them both physically and professionally? Well, again, you know, when 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 you are declared the enemy of the people, that's a new danger mm-hmm. that, never, that never happened before. Now, it was always extremely dangerous to to go to report overseas in some places where, you know, journalists go missing, including in Russia. And, and, and think about, think about the journalists who, um, you know, covered the war in Syria or some of these other real hotspots. I mean, in, in the old days, it was like, it was unwritten, no matter who the enemy combatants were, that, that journalists were kind of like the Red Cross, right? <laughs> they're out there, they're neutral. Both sides were okay with them because um, they were the, again, independent observers who will tell, who were telling the real story. So we're going to let them do their thing. And we might not like what they write or what they broadcast, but we appreciate their role. Well, you know, you have now 
some of these terrorist organizations like ISIS or whatever, who think it's kind of cool to, to kill a journalist on camera. And I think that also stems back from Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was, yeah. uh, you know, killed in Pakistan after kidnapping and all that. That was just a horrible situation. So now all of a sudden, you know, if you're going down to South America doing a uh, covering drug smuggling, well, you know, and you get some people who are a member of a cartel, they're not going to say, oh, you're a journalist. Yeah, come on, we'll welcome you in there. So you have the, you have that that international thing is always going to be really, really scary. And it also means that not everything is going to get covered because some news organizations just will not send their journalists in those hotspots because they, they don't want to risk their lives. Yeah. Now, domestically, it really never has been a problem. But when you when you have a rally, a, um, a rally and the, and the person leading the rally, who at this point is President of the United States, talks about fake news and points people out and actually by name says things. And you have people who are already ginned up on anger and, and whatever it is. That's putting people at risk. Luckily, so far, no one's been seriously hurt you know there's been a couple of you know elbows and a couple of like especially for some of the women reporters some harassing incidents certainly some verbal altercations but still it could become a problematic situation and especially because journalists tend to be at these big rallies they're in a certain area a journalistic pen you can't really escape it so there is some vulnerability there and i think you've seen even little things like i don't know if you saw there was a journalist doing a stand-up at a race and a guy was running by and just like slapped her. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that is just like really pretty much, you know, uncalled for. And it it just seems like journalists are more fair game these days. Mm. So I think we have to be alert to those things. Yeah. Well, maybe we can, you know, through my podcast here, I'm trying to make the world better. Maybe we can, help people understand the important role that journalists play. I really think that they do and really deserve, you know, a lot of respect. I mean, I think we need to care for them. That's There's my soapbox. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, we're thinking, because think about right now in this situation, we certainly, these as doctors, these nurses, these healthcare providers, the police, they're essential people and they are putting their lives at risk every day. But you know what? Those the reporters are out there too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're out there at risk too because they're trying to bring that story. And there's been some tremendous stories, like what was going on in the New York Times, that story about what was going on in the hospital in Queens was just unbelievable. And uh, some stuff up in Seattle, Washington as well. That was kind of like the very beginning of all of this. The reporting that came out of there was tremendous. Yep. And you know, they're not sitting at home just making phone calls. They're going out there and talking to people. So, um, you know, kudos to them. Yeah, that was a really interesting story. I just recorded an episode with a couple of writers from PEN America who did a story about losing the local news. Yeah. It's really an interesting episode. And I wrote for a little while for a little paper up in the town where I often spend the summers and that paper has has kind of collapsed. And so I'm really aware of what you were talking about earlier. You know, no one's watching City Hall, right? So there's, there's a lot of stuff yep. happening at the town council level, and it's just not being reported on. People in town just simply don't know. <laughs> so it was a, you know, really eye-opening thing to observe that, yes, once I stopped writing for that paper, that information just disappeared. Right. and and. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful maybe this whole thing 
maybe papers like that will reappear under different ownership and under a different model. But there is hunger in that town, and hopefully someone will fill that void. Yeah, and I thought that New York Times article about the Seattle Times coverage of what was happening in the nursing homes and elsewhere in Seattle, you know, it was really interesting to see a national newspaper acknowledge the importance of local news. So what positive signs do you see and what can we do to help guarantee access to news? So, like I said earlier, my positive sign is that we're, you know, the cliche that we're all in this together. And so people are relying on it more. We're all in, we're all in the toilet right now, all businesses everywhere. And so it's not just, ah, the news business is bad. Everyone else is good. And I'm hoping that, like I said, when people come out of the ashes of all this, they're going to have to advertise. They're going to have to get their message out. And I'm just hoping journalism is lifted by all of this. And part of it is, remember I told you about Wall Street interest in journalism and all that because they're such a big money maker. Well, you can still make money in journalism. Not as much money as you used to make, but I'm hoping, and maybe even do not for profits, mm-hmm. or maybe you know what a lot of towns have been lucky, including the Washington Post, is that they have um, you know well, very wealthy individuals in those towns who who are kind of independently wealthy who are willing to come in and basically support, like Jeff Bezos of the Washington Post, support the news organization without the expectation of making a lot of money hoping not to lose money maybe, but, and if you're starting from scratch without a debt or any of this, I mean, part of the problem now is some of these venture capital firms like Alden, who like just is is trying to probably buy the Chicago Tribune. Many of them bought these news organizations, especially newspapers for their real estate, because the real estate was uh, incredible in some of these towns. Hmm. And um, they would sell that off then. And then they're decimating the staff to get as much money as they can out of it. So I'm hoping that the Aldens of the world have been decimated themselves by this plunge. And so they're going to say, yeah, well, forget the news business. We're going to, we got bigger fish to fry right now. I and see. so I'm hoping people who can, you know, who can maybe purchase some of these at really cut rate prices and go into it. The other thing is that there are not-for-profit models where I think it's in Philadelphia now and you have ProPublica, which is just really an investigative site, but it's a not-for-profit. But if a not-for-profit buys a local paper, kind of like through a United Way type thing, and mm. says, okay, uh, we don't care about making money. We're just going, whatever profits we go, we'll put back into the paper. Then you could have a pretty vibrant news organization at, at, at less cost. And, and think about it now. I mean, the biggest cost for a newspaper used to be um, production and distribution. Yeah. Well, now you don't have, if, if you're doing everything online, you, there, there's no um, there's no cost to produce the paper and you don't have to distribute it because people are going to get it online. And so part of the issue is the making sure a lot of people have online access and then having, you know, online subscriptions and have having all the news you need right on your computer screen. And I think, again, so many uh, papers that have paywalls now, which were something that should have been, it had been instituted 20 or 30 years ago, uh, or 20 years ago at least, would have absolutely saved the business. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to that lately, but there's so many of them who have, those who have it now are, are basically removing those paywalls so that the entire public can see what they're doing about the coronavirus. Once things get back to a semblance of normality, 
they put those paywalls up again, I think more of the public will be willing to subscribe to those organizations, to those news organizations. Yeah, I hope there will be a better appreciation for for news. So th- yeah. I think that's possible. And where are we as a profession? Are you finding students are still interested in becoming journalists or not so much? And what do they see as their mission? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because um, I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Because I came of age during Watergate, so I would be part of that Watergate generation who thought, oh, wow, you know, you can really make a, a difference as a journalist. And it also meant that like when I was 24 years old, I was like traveling with Ronald Reagan during a presidential campaign, which is mm. just like bizarre when you think about it, right? I'm thinking this is going to be the, there, a friend of mine said that, you know, you have millennials in general, actually the people born within this next grouping will be called the coronials. But I'm thinking that the, that the, uh, that this coronavirus and this, pandemic and the and the coverage of this, I think will attract a lot of people to journalism. Even before this, we had a lot of, of journalism students who wanted to enter journalism because they wanted to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that made me a little queasy, right? Because it's like some of them wanted to make a difference because they wanted to be advocates for you know certain causes, which, you know, our training is we're not advocates. We're, you know, we're truth seekers, we're truth tellers, but we don't advocate from one side over the other. Mm-hmm. However, once they get to us, we try to knock out that advocacy from them. And so far, I think we've been pretty successful. But the, the notion is they do know that they can make it. They want to be out there and they want to be able to cover the stuff and to be to explain to the public. And that's still there. And, and the truth of the matter was that while they weren't necessarily getting jobs at traditional news organizations, they were getting, you know, in the BuzzFeeds and the Axios of the world. And they were, um, they were, the jobs were plentiful. The problem was that the jobs didn't pay as well as the old jobs did. Yep, yep. And a lot of times, you know, as you know, they had to be freelancers. And so um, they didn't have a lot of benefits that go with those type of things. But again, everyone's kind of in that right now with, you know, jobs, these traditional jobs laying off people right and left. And, and so, again, I'm hopeful that, you know, the, the good paying journalistic type jobs will come back and they'll come back in, in a multitude more than they have been. But only time will tell on that. When you are educating students, what are the big pieces that you want them to walk away from uh, the Newhouse School with? Yeah, so that that's good. I mean, the truth of the matter is, it's the same, it's the same skill set that we that we always wanted, which which was we obviously want them to be curious, but the the main skills that they come out with are critical thinking skills and great writing skills, and the they're appreciative because those are the type of skills that you can use in any job you go to. And so they come to us, you know, the undergraduates come to us when they're 17 or 18 and they might want to go into public relations or they might want to go into broadcast journalism or into advertising, but they don't really know because they're 17 or 18 years old. But the skills we give them are skills like multimedia storytelling that they can use in any, really any profession they end up going into. And so um, that's why from an undergraduate perspective, we still have over 5,000 applications for about 400 slots. Wow. Yeah, graduate, not so much because, first of all, now that many people go to graduate school, especially when the economy is good. So it'll be interesting to see how, mm. how this shakes out now. But um, 
you know, that's much more specific. They already know what, for sure what they want to do. And so that's when, if they come into our like magazine, uh, news and digital journalism program, will there be jobs? Will there be good paying jobs that will, you know, because they're taking out money, they're, they're going into debt to get this program. Will they get uh, jobs that will actually be able to pay off their debt and, and make them whole again? And Lately, that's been the biggest struggle for us, I think, is that, you know, we give them a meaningful education, we give them all those skills, we give them the ability to do that. But if the jobs aren't there after they get out, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do, educating and supporting journalism. And before I let you go, is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners, how they could follow your work or really anything you'd uh, like them to know? Um, if they just would Google uh, Newhouse School and they go onto our website, there's all sorts of great information about our students, about our faculty, about what we do. Um, luckily, the last two years, I was able to take uh, students uh, to Israel. So if they want to, if they want to uh, Google Newhouse in Israel, you'll see some just great reporting from our students there. And then this past February, before all this happened, luckily I took a class to New Hampshire. So they covered the primary for news organizations across the country for, the, you know, in Indiana and Minnesota for the Mayor Pete and for uh, Senator Klobuchar um, who were covering it. So that's not put together yet, but we try to do really things that are professionally oriented mm-hmm. and, it, and they're good. They're cool. really good. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.